So this morning we continue our sermon series uh, called Won't You Be My Neighbor, borrowing the question from everybody's favorite neighbor, Mr. Rogers. We wondered last week about the teachings in the Old and New Testaments around the lines and the boundaries that we tend to draw between each other and how the biblical voice seems to keep saying to us to look past the lines and to see who's on the other side to go even as far as to invite people onto your territory to feast from your harvest and to not allow the lines to keep us from hearing one another's stories. Stories are maybe the greatest thing that we have to give each other. Today we look at one of the more disturbing stories in the New Testament and in the ministry of Jesus recorded in two of the Gospels, Matthew and Mark and we will read Mark's version today. So hear the word of God. From there, Jesus set out and went away to the region of Tyre, and he entered a house and did not want anyone to know that he was there. Yet he could not escape notice, but a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately heard about him, and she came and bowed down at his feet, now, the woman was a Gentile, a person from Syrophoenician origin. She begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And Jesus said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Sir, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And then Jesus said to her, For saying that, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. So she went home and found the child lying on the bed and the demon gone. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. By your grace and through your mercy, we pray, O Lord, that you will allow these words to come to point to the word just read and to the word made flesh in Jesus the Christ, for we pray this in his name. Amen. In William Golding's haunting tale, Lord of the Flies, a book I suppose many of us were required to read somewhere in our schooling, he tells the dystopian tale of young boys whose plane, evidently escaping the threats of war, crash, crashes on a deserted island. Those that survive the crash are left to fend for themselves without the aid of adult supervision. At first, the boys begin to set some rules for how they're going to order themselves while they wait for help. All for one and one for all is how it all begins. They determine the priorities around their survival and they set off to do things that they've agreed to do together. But it doesn't take long for the group to fall apart. Disagreements amidst rivals leads to conflict. The boys pick up sides, become enemies, grow afraid not only of their future but of each other. And in the end, any semblance of civilization they've brought to the island has turned to savagery. They turn in on themselves, 
not unlike the adult war they have been escaping in the first place. Certainly not a happy tale, at little risk of being produced by Disney anytime soon. But it is a story they gave us to read in school, as, un as unhappy as it is, because perhaps it's true. True not in the sense that the characters and events are historical, but true in the sense that the storyline is human, really human, which is to say that human beings have this tendency to pull apart. When left to our own devices and despite our best attempts, there seems to be this centrifugal force that, that pulls us apart, that divides us, and that draws us into camps, into circles, into tribes. Yuval Noah Harari, in his engaging history of humankind, which he titles Sapiens, agrees with the theory that humans in our evolution grew to become a social species. Our strength comes not in our physical prowess, but through our alliances and our allegiances. We are more secure in the smaller connections we have with each other. So we create circles and tribes and rings to reinforce our social connections. And, and we can only be social so far, no more than a hundred or so. So we, we tend to divide and split and encamp ourselves in circles and tribes. And we gravitate toward those who are most like us, who most agree with us, who most look like us. Sometimes it's a group of five, sometimes it's a group of 50, sometimes it's a group of 100. We join clubs, we root for the same teams, we pledge sororities and fraternities, we even attend churches in order to huddle ourselves together with our kind of people and therein find our security. C.S. Lewis calls this the inner ring. That human beings have this insatiable desire to be inside the inner ring, that collection of people who are on the inside, the inside of taste, the inside of power, the inside of intellect, the inside of fashion, the inside of race and culture, the inside of just kind of plain being cool. I want to be on the inside, and I most definitely don't want to be on the outside. God forbid if I'm on the outside. You might not survive if you're on the outside. And when there's an inside and an outside, there is always a them and an us. I'm on the inside and you are on the outside. I'm on this side of the line and you're on that side of the line. Last week, we talked about how we draw lines and boundaries first around our property, then around our families, then around our friends, and then around like-minded people. And we struggle to stay on the inside. And as a result, sometimes bad things happen. We become rivals, we become enemies, and sometimes we become savages. Lewis said, of all the passions, the passion for the inner ring is the most skillful in making a man who is not yet a very bad man do very bad things. And we see it all the time, right, on school playgrounds, 
in corporate boardrooms, in country club admissions, in church prayer groups, in political discussions. Of all the passions, the passion for the inner ring is the most skillful in making a man who's not yet a very bad man do very bad things. All this may explain in part the story we read this morning from Mark's gospel, the story of Jesus' trip outside of Israel into the land of the pagans, into the land of the Gentiles, those who who are outside the boundary of God's chosen people. We'll, We'll never understand why Jesus took himself way up there outside the inner circle of his own faith and culture, but there Jesus is, and sure enough, he is confronted by someone who's outside the circle, an unchosen one, someone not lucky enough to be born to the right parents. One of them and not one of us. But she's a mother, and she has a sick daughter. And it doesn't take being in the circle or outside the circle to know that when your child is sick, you're desperate. You will do anything. You will go anywhere. You will bust into any circle when it comes to your daughter. So the desperate woman throws herself in front of Jesus and begs him to do something about her daughter. She's heard the rumors. She's heard that Jesus may have a few tricks up his sleeve. Please, Rabbi, make my daughter well again. Now Jesus is in somewhat of an existential crisis. He's a Jew. His whole teaching is about how Jews can become better Jews. He's in this inner ring. And she's a pagan. She's an unbeliever. She's one of them. So Jesus can't help himself but to say perhaps the cruelest thing he will ever say. It isn't fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. Really? Did Jesus just say that? Did he just call this desperate mother a a dog? There must be some way to explain this. There must be some way to soften the harshness of what Jesus has just said. Unfortunately, there doesn't appear to be. Out of Jesus' humanness, out of his tribeness, out of his inner ringness, even Jesus can't see past the line this desperate human, this common suffering, this wounded spirit in this woman. He can only see the other, the opponent the rival. Isn't fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. So Jesus surprises us. Maybe surprises himself with his callousness. Tribes can do that to you. 
Not to be denied, however, the desperate, panicked mother refuses to back down and says to Jesus, call me whatever you want. Call me a dog, I don't care. But you know, even dogs get hungry, and they will be glad for the crumbs that fall from the children's table. Now, we don't know what happened. Maybe it was Jesus hearing himself say what he said, you know, sort of in the vein of, I I just can't believe I said that. Or, Or maybe it was the woman throwing his language right back into his face. But Jesus, in the moment, is converted. Jesus sees something that maybe he's not seen before. Jesus looks outside his inner inner ring and sees a suffering human being. The the soon-to-be suffering servant is now seeing a suffering mother. And who doesn't really feel for a suffering mother? Who doesn't feel for a sick child? So, So to hell with the inner ring, he says. To hell with the tribe. To hell with the Jews only club. Jesus turns to the woman and says, you know, for saying that, You may go, for the demon has left your daughter. Is this the day the world changed? Is this the day when all of our theories of evolutionary development and anthropological assumptions about tribes and circles and rings and the survival of the fittest, is this the day when Jesus introduces a brand new force of nature that works against the very grain of our human nature? Is this the day when Jesus says, you know, to be human, to be a child of God is to first see the commonness in our suffering, that before we are tribe, before we are club, before we are clan, we are fellow sufferers, and that the kingdom of heaven is for the merciful. It's when Jesus introduces into the world the power, the centripetal force, the force that pulls us together of unconditional love. I love you despite your affiliation, despite your culture, despite your club, despite despite even your inability to love me back. Is this the day when Jesus says, I don't care if you're a green three-eyed monster. For God's sake, you're a mom, and you got a sick child. And that trumps everything. The greatest political speech I've ever heard came in the form of a quasi-sermon delivered by former congressman, ambassador, and mayor, Andrew Young. 20 years ago, before the National Prayer Breakfast in Washington, D.C. I don't want you to think that I'm a guest of the National Prayer Breakfast every time they have it. It's the only time I went. (laughs) But there he told the room of bitter partisans, Republicans and Democrats, that the one thing they all held in common was their suffering. He pointed to his own grief, having laid to rest his own wife months before. He pointed to the president who had lost his mother. He pointed to the cabinet member whose 16-year-old daughter was losing her fight to cancer. And he pointed to all the handwritten notes and cards of condolence that he knew had crossed the aisle had crossed over the partisan divides. And he said, you know, suffering knows no boundaries. 
There is a human drama of suffering, he continued, that involves all of us. And maybe that's what makes us one. And in Jesus, God has identified with our sufferings. And in that room of talking heads, you could hear a pin drop because it was true. Truer than the Lord of the Flies they had made Washington to be. Makes me think of the middle of the night phone call I received from one of my parishioners to tell me that her husband had had a stroke and could I come to the ICU to pray for him, of course. Well, I was fresh out of seminary, having been schooled in all the particulars of what Christians believed and what they did not believe, and what sets us apart from everybody else. So to the ICU I went and prayed for this desperate woman and her ailing husband of 57 years. We stayed a while, and I insisted she go home and rest, and I would stay for a while to keep watch. So I went to sit in the waiting room, and across from me sat an older man, quietly crying. I asked him why he was there. He told me of his wife's heart attack, and that the doctors held out little hope. He asked me why I was there. I told him that I was a Presbyterian pastor visiting a parishioner. Oh, he said, I'm a rabbi. We discussed our congregations a bit, and then I said, I wish not to presume anything, but I'd be happy to pray for you if you would find that helpful. And he asked, and why would I not find that helpful? Good question. So we both stepped outside of our circles and we prayed to the God who suffers for us all. Those of you who have done your reading on the Civil War know that the great battle that took place in Fredericksburg, Virginia in December of 1862. The Union and the Confederate troops engaged one another in the midst of the town. Casualties were great, especially on the Union side. And when the morning of December 14th broke, it was discovered that some 8,000 dead and wounded Union soldiers lay littered across the fields. With guns and cannons at a standstill, all that the Union and Confederate lines could hear were the moans and cries of the wounded left and periled upon the fields. But nobody could do anything out of fear of being shot by snipers and cannon fire. Finally, one young Confederate sergeant, Richard Roland Kirkland, 19 years old, could stand it no longer. He went to his general and asked permission to minister to the enemy. The general reluctantly gave his approval, but said he could not go under the protection of the white flag. He was on his own. I'll take my chances, said the boy. He gathered up canteens of his comrades jumped over the protecting wall and began ministering to the moaning wounded Yankees. No shots were fired from the Union side, of course, because they could, because they could see what, they were do, what he was doing. He was outside of the circle, tending to theirs. No shots were fired. Instead came cheers from the Union side 
as Sergeant Kirkland for the next hours ministered to every hurting soldier he could find on the field. They called him that day the Angel of Mary's Heights because, of course, that's what angels do. Those who are closest in communion with God, they see no color, no enemy, no uniform, no division, no battle. They see what holds us together, our common wounds. It was in that very same month, December 1862, that the poet Walt Whitman made it his mission to daily visit the medical tents of Union soldiers wounded in the war. Day by day, Whitman would bring his little sack of humble gifts, fruit, candy, clothing, tobacco, books, magazines, pencils, and paper, all for the purposes of just coming alongside the suffering of his fellow human beings and to bring them some encouragement and cheer. He did this for several years, even past the end of the war, prompted perhaps by the line he had once written, I do not ask the wounded person how he feels. I myself become the wounded person. Won't you be my neighbor? Asked the desperate mother, the wounded enemy, the hurting rabbi, the visiting poet, our friends on the panhandle, our mission partners in need of advocacy, that person outside your circle. Won't you be my neighbor? Won't you step outside your inner ring? For maybe, just maybe, the world will change. 